Rana is a goner, the Speaker's plan to impeach falls out of reach, and no immunity for the guy who acts with impunity. It's a tailor-made episode of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 409 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. She's real fine, my 409. She's real fine, my 409, my 409. It's actually episode CDIX in honor of the Super Bowl, but I'll get to that later. I need to start with the Republican attempt to impeach Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Not because he's guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, but because Republicans want to make a point about their unhappiness with the situation at the border. That situation happens to be untenable, and for some reason it has taken Democrats longer than expected to realize that this is not only an issue about security in the United States, but it's one that could and will be used to pummel them in the election. That's precisely why, when Senate Republicans and Democrats came up with a plan to deal with migrants in the border, a bill that would also send military aid to Ukraine and Israel, Donald Trump would have none of it. Why solve a problem that can be used to clobber Joe Biden over the head from now until November 5th? Plus, why give Biden credit for it? Thus, Trump made it clear to his pliant acolytes in Congress that it should be dead on arrival. And House Speaker Mike Johnson followed the order, saying it was dead on arrival. The biggest crisis facing the United States, so big that uh, we should wait until 2025 after Trump takes office. And rather than fund the $118 billion package, the House GOP decided what would really be smart would be the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. I'm going to play some tape. First, Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene in a committee hearing, and then, in response, Maryland's Jamie Raskin on the House floor. This historical evidence is overwhelming that the Founding Fathers intended impeachment to be used to deal with the commission of indictable crimes and the abuse of power. We're here because the madcap wild goose chase to impeach Joe Biden has produced no wild geese. Even Fox News is lampooning the fact that their own expert witnesses repeatedly say President Biden did nothing wrong and there are no grounds for impeachment. More than a dozen GOP members in Biden-majority districts don't want to go anywhere near that fantasy production. So the Trump-Putin mega-faction headed up by the distinguished gentlelady from Georgia has been given this worthless trinket of a consolation prize, the opportunity to bring a slapstick impeachment drive against a cabinet member of unimpeachable integrity who has obviously committed no treason, no bribery, no high crimes, no misdemeanors, nothing indictable or even indictable, if you prefer. Despite its ostensible Republican majority and in a stunning embarrassment for Speaker Johnson, the House with three Republicans voting no, rejected impeaching Mayorkas on Tuesday. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted.
Why Johnson took it to the floor without knowing it would pass is beyond me. But don't worry, the GOP said it'll try again. One of the three dissenting Republicans, Tom McClintock of California, is clearly not a fan of Mayorkas. Mr. Speaker, Secretary Mayorkas is guilty of maladministration of our immigration laws on a cosmic scale. But we know that's not grounds for impeachment because the American founders specifically rejected it. They didn't want political disputes to become impeachments because that would shatter the separation of powers that vests the enforcement of the laws with the president, no matter how bad a job he does. Cabinet secretaries can't serve two masters. They can be impeached for committing a crime relating to their office, but not for carrying out presidential policy. And in case you were wondering whether it's okay for a former president to be held accountable for crimes they may have committed while in office, we have an answer. We have a three-to-nothing decision from a federal appeals court on Tuesday, rejecting Donald Trump's assertion that he was immune for prosecution for crimes committed during his presidency. The Trump campaign will likely appeal to the Supreme Court. There's no telling whether the court will take the case. But here was Trump making his case before the decision was announced. Uh, when they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong, I'm working for the country. And I worked on uh, very hard on voter fraud because we have to have free elections. We have to have strong borders. We have to have free elections. Those two things, almost above all. And we found tremendous voter fraud. We have a list of it. We have some findings if you want it. The press doesn't like reporting it, but we found tremendous voter fraud, determinative voter fraud. But we worked on that. That's what I was doing. And, uh, Trump is the first former president ever indicted. He is the first to claim that he was entitled to immunity while serving as president. He's also leading Joe Biden in the polls. Maybe one day someone will explain this to me. The winner takes it all. The loser stands once more. Beside the Celebrity politics has been around for a long time. There's nothing new about stars, often from television or movies, using their celebrity to influence an election. Sometimes it can make a difference, a big difference, like when Oprah Winfrey endorsed Barack Obama in 2007. Well, I not only care about this country, but there are times that I even worry about what happens to our country. And that is why, for the very first time in my life, I feel compelled to stand up and to speak out for the man who I believe has a new vision for America. I'm not here for partisan beliefs. Over the years, I've voted for as many Republicans as I have Democrats. So this isn't about partisanship for me. This is very, very personal. I'm here because of my personal conviction about Barack Obama and what I know he can do for America. 
And because we only get to choose one, I came out in the cold today to tell you why I believe that choice needs to be Barack Obama. Ronald Reagan didn't have the star power that Oprah had when he endorsed his favorite candidate in 1964. I've known Barry Goldwater for a long time. When I hear people say he's impulsive and such nonsense, I boil over. Believe me, if it weren't for Barry keeping those boys in Washington on their toes, do you honestly think our national defense would be as strong as it is? So join me, won't you? Let's get a real leader and not a power politician in the White House. Vote for Barry Goldwater. Of course, no endorsement was going to help Goldwater defeat President Johnson in 64, but no one blamed Reagan for Goldwater's landslide defeat. If anything, the endorsement helped Reagan, launching a political career that later led him to the California governorship and then the White House. There was also Frank Sinatra singing in 1960. Even Al Jolson got into the act in 1920. So it's Hardy, lead the GOP. Hardy, on to victory. We're here to make a fuss. Warren Harding, you're the man for us. Not every celebrity endorsement was effective. For instance, Katy Perry, Chris Pratt, Snoop Dogg, Gwyneth Paltrow, and many other celebrities endorsed a Republican billionaire, Rick Caruso, for mayor of Los Angeles in 2022. Despite the endorsements and Caruso's hefty campaign bankroll, he lost the election to Karen Bass. And many of us are still trying to figure out Clint Eastwood's conversation with an invisible President Obama, represented by an empty chair, at the 2012 Republican convention. Uh, so I've got, um, I've got Mr. Obama sitting here, and he's, I, I just was gonna ask him a couple questions. So Mr. President, how do you, uh, how do you handle, uh, how do you handle promises that you made when you were running for election? And how do you handle, uh, how do you handle it? I mean, what do you say to people? Do you, uh, do you just, uh, you know, I know, People, uh, people were wondering, you don't, you don't have it, okay. Well, I know even some of the people in your own party were very disappointed when you didn't close Gitmo. And I thought, uh, well, I think get, closing Gitmo, why close that? We've spent so much money on it. Uh, but uh, I thought maybe it's an excuse. Uh, oh, you, what do you mean, shut up? Okay, we're going to have to have a little chat about that. And then uh, I, I just wondered, these, all these promises, and then I, I wondered about, uh, uh, you know, when, when uh, the, uh, what? What do you want me to tell Romney? I can't tell him to do that. I can't do that to himself. A dozen years later, we're still not sure what Clint was thinking. 
The point is that, one, celebrities have never shied away from trying to use their star power to influence an election. And two, the attention and focus were never on the celebrity. Well, maybe for Oprah. It was all about the candidate until now. Now we have a superstar by the name of Taylor Swift. She has 279 million followers on Instagram, which is about 279 million more than I have. She's dating a star tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey, whose team is competing in Sunday's Super Bowl. And the reaction to the possibility that she may endorse Joe Biden for president, as she did in 2020, is nothing like we've ever seen before. It has thrown the MAGA crowd and Fox News into a frenzy. Does Taylor realize the guy that they want her to endorse is a kind of stumbling, bumbling mess? She shouldn't be liberal. She should be a total conservative, given what, given everything. The Pentagon PSYOP unit pitched NATO on turning Taylor Swift into an asset. I think she should just stick to her singing and let her love life be what it is. A new poll shows 18 percent of voters are likely to vote for whichever candidate Taylor Swift endorses. Uh Uh-oh. Biden effectively has Taylor Swift as his VP. Single post of hers led to 35,000 new registrants. That's arguably more power than the president. And this is from Newsmax. I kind of have a problem, though, with the hardcore Taylor Swift fans. They are totally over the top worshiping this woman. I think what they call it is uh, they're elevating her to an idol. In fact, if you look it up in the Bible, it's a sin. I mean, does, does the MAGA crowd look at Trump as an idol? Of course not. And on June 14th, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state. So God made Trump. Catherine Lofton is a professor of religious studies and American studies at Yale University with extensive writings about popular culture. I don't know if she has an answer to this madness, but we'll find out. Professor Lofton, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm not sure where it's going to lead us, but, but even before we delve into the whole Taylor Swift insanity I think we can agree we have a long history of celebrities getting involved in politics and endorsing candidates. We do, but I, I want to note that in, in the American pop sphere, the voters don't really love it. They like seeing John Bon Jovi show up for a Bill Clinton rally to play. But historically, Americans haven't been super excited to hear celebrities talk about politics. They they're pretty ruthless in making fun of them because they like their celebrities to dance and sing and to be exactly for everyone and not to suggest that, you know, if I really, really love your movie, but I vote for someone else, do I have to stop loving your movie? So I think we've seen, for example, when Chris Pratt, who started out as a comedian, has become an action star, uh, kind of emerged as a potentially conservative hero and, and Christian father. He really got backlash for being out in those politics. It's complicated. American pop culture likes its celebrities to be as neutral seeming as possible so as many people could enjoy what they make as possible. Yeah, I think of uh, Mel Gibson. I mean, his career took a nosedive whenever he said something controversial. It's such an interesting example because, again, a person who was a heartthrob, a delight 
to women everywhere when he's doing his lethal weapon self, his Aussie fun time, chatting it up with a world of others in which he's never quite the most competent person in the room, but often the most funny. He then comes out with the truth about his person. And, and I just want to know, because I'm a scholar of religion primarily, it's really because he'd come so convicted in his faith and wanted to make a film that resonated with that, that reflected what he thought. And I note the film was both extremely popular, one of the most popular releases of all time, that's The Passion of the Christ, but it destroyed Mel Gibson's career as a movie star. People didn't think they could laugh with him anymore if they didn't share his religious politics. Celebrities should stay with celebrities, sports stars should stay with sports, uh, and politicians should stay with politics, right? That's what they want. I guess that's what the American people want. I think historically that's been the way. What I have been watching is how newer generations, millennials, Gen Z, find that inauthentic and are more demanding via social media that their favorite stars come out on politics that matter to them. So I think we are seeing the generational shift, and that really relates to what's happening to Taylor Swift right now. You know, I'm even thinking, even when Oprah endorsed Obama, you know, one would think that she might be beyond criticism, but... A lot of Hillary Clinton fans felt that she betrayed her. So there's always a risk for even somebody as prominent as Oprah to make an endorsement. And so there could be, theoretically, a risk for Taylor Swift, even though she endorsed Joe Biden in 2020 and didn't suffer you know, terribly. Well, two things are really different. One is the time that it happens in a person's career and the kind of endorsement it was. Oprah didn't just say, yeah, that's who I'm voting for. She went on the campaign trail and by political scientist evaluation changed what happened in Iowa because she was so persistently out there. And she did it at a time towards the end of her leadership on daytime TV. So she had already been in the public eye every single day at 4 p.m. for over 20 years when she realized that her life story and Barack Obama's life story were aligned. And she spoke very passionately in her magazine, on her TV show, about how she recognized in him something she always believed about America. So he was a climax of her own life, which had largely been very apolitical. Before Obama, Oprah would have both candidates on the show every time there was a presidential election season. So she was older. She was ready to come out. And he was her true dream candidate, her favorite thing. Taylor is at a younger stage of her career, and you know, her last endorsement of Joe Biden was not a, a big out there claim. She was a person who felt it was appropriate to note it, especially since she'd been noticing politics in her home state of Tennessee, and she didn't like where those politics were going. And some of her LGBT fan base was pressuring her pretty hard to be clear that she didn't endorse someone who didn't support LGBT politics and didn't support women, as her fans were telling her Trump did not. But she wasn't really out there. She wasn't speaking loudly. She wasn't on the campaign trail. She was one of a mass of celebrities who said, sure, sure, yeah, Biden, he's better than the other guy. But now we're in a very different, spectacular season. Number one, Taylor is, if it's possible, much more famous than she was in the last election. And number two, her power, frankly, supersedes both the presidential candidates. At this point, she has more followers, more interests, more delight by the public than either Biden or Trump. You know, I was, I was thinking that we know that we've seen endorsements before, but one of the reasons this feels especially different is that there hasn't even been an endorsement. I mean, Fox and MAGA World are, are going ballistic about something that hasn't even happened. Well, that tells you two things. Number one, 
they really fear her. That 18% statistic, that is 18% of voters will do what Taylor recommends. That's more than a margin of election. That's a potential landslide. And number two, I think we're really looking at a season of politics that's continuing what we've been watching for a time, which is the delight in celebrity power as a way to have a kind of spectacular mythic clash on daily TV. What's more exciting than watching a Tennessee blonde girl with a football boyfriend potentially take on two very old men as they potentially run for office? This is Olympian. This is really thrilling for a public that's looking for entertainment often more than it's looking for policy specifics. James Panawazic of the New York Times wrote that Swift is living rent-free in Fox News hosts' heads. I think, I think that's pretty accurate. I think it's accurate, too, but I, I also want to remind everyone that for a long time, Taylor Swift, and you can just Google this, put Taylor Swift and Breitbart into your Google. You'll see that for a long time, she was an Aryan goddess. She was loved by the right wing as the physical and human ideal of girlhood, of country music, original fame, the kind of girl dads could feel great about and think the world isn't changing very quick. So one of the reasons I think Fox News can't get her out of the head is they're kind of heartbroken that their favorite daughter seems to have potentially gone to the left. And I want to be clear, I don't know that she has. I actually think that the histrionics of Fox News are really overblown to the political reality of Taylor Swift. I think her politics could be seen as generally democratic. But I, I'm simply not convinced that she, and especially depending on how long she stays with Travis Kelsey, where her politics may go, I think are much more mobile than the fears suggest. And the wildest thing, I mean, I don't know what the wildest thing is in a, in a, in a story that is just so wild in every, in every possible way. But Fox News, you know, showing disdain about, about celebrity. And here they had Donald Trump on for years as a celebrity, you know, opining about this or that well before he launched his bid for president. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that we're watching with Travis, Kelsey, and, and Taylor Swift is just a long pre-campaign for Kelsey to run for public office. You know, Trump and Biden are in their final season of American political imperative. What's next? I'm fairly certain we're going to see some athletes in the mix in this populist country of electoral politics. Well, you know, Steve Garvey is running for the Senate right now in California. I, I think what we don't understand is how much having daily access to voters and Gen X and baby boomers through TV media is really powerful. Um, as Emily Nussbaum wrote famously about Trump, never underestimate the power of a, of a regular TV show to make someone seem reliable in the mind of a voter. And I think Steve Harvey, whatever his actual ideas, has been a, a man that many people have witnessed across years, being jovial, able, welcoming to a plural group of people. I'm not saying he's going to win. I'm just saying it wasn't a bad idea to think he could. You know, other than George W. Bush in 2004, Republicans haven't won the popular vote in a presidential election since 1988. Wouldn't it make sense to embrace Swifties or Swiftism or, you know, and maybe not the politics, but at least the music? And I saw the uh, I saw the president of the San Francisco 49ers on some interview show. And uh, he basically said, I welcome, I love the attention that we're all getting. I love what Taylor Swift is bringing into all this. Fox News theoretically could use her to their advantage, even if she does not endorse their favorite candidate. I've been thinking so much about the longstanding association in Fox News with a certain kind of gendered journalist. And we can imagine this person who wears bright colored suits, has also excellent teeth and long blonde hair. 
and thinking about how exactly Taylor Swift is central casting for Fox News and its affiliates. Why is it not working? Well, number one, I don't think Taylor Swift would ever want to be associated with that brand, nor would she want to be associated with MSNBC. Taylor's success has been by staying pretty neutral across her political history. I just want to repeat that. Her own political speech acts have been extremely rare. She has said over and over again, on the advice of her own father, stay out of politics if she wants to have real success as a person who is trying to sell music around the world. So she is not interested in this political story, but I couldn't agree with you more. Fox News misses a moment, but I think they're also recognizing that the generation that most adulates under Taylor is very ambivalent about extremist politics. It wants things to be chill, to be restful, to have really awesome Saturday afternoons where you read YA novels, think about a future wedding where your dad meets you at the end of the aisle. They are not interested in ugly talk. They're precisely embracing Taylor because she creates a world of sweetness and rest for girls who feel assaulted on both sides by needing to be something other than sweet, down with dad, loving, loving, loving fantasy. I don't know if this is comparable, but I was thinking what happened to the the Dixie Chicks, or now the Chicks, uh, years ago when they suddenly went from music. Well, they didn't leave music, but they also got into controversial political positions, and half the American audience seemed to sour on them. Ken, I, I couldn't agree more. I want to underline that for Taylor, that was a political object lesson that she has specifically pointed to. And she saw, number one, country music is a place where you really are going to be quickly judged for playing at the wrong politics. You note she moved herself, I think, for musical but also political reasons out of country and into pop. And number two, you're not going to be able to survive when an entire wing of the audience turns against you. And the Dixie Chicks are an amazing band that will never have the same fame they did because a huge part of their audience thinks that they are rude to people that they value. Not that they necessarily disagree with the politics. It is about rudeness and about a form and an attitude that a lot of pop culture seeks to be a very expressive, controlled wildness relative to the extremism of American public life. And I think Swifties see Taylor as a refuge. They don't want to hear an earful about the politics of abortion, of Israel, of how we make income inequality go away. They want a break from that. You know, I'm still wondering how I feel, and I'm wondering how you feel. I mean, part of part of me is amused, you know, uh, at the absurdity of it all, um, that the 2020 election was rigged for Joe Biden, and now the Super Bowl is rigged for the Chiefs uh, because, you know, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are going to go and endorse Joe Biden and because she's a government asset and psychological warfare. I mean, I'm reading this and I'm saying, oh, my God, this is just crazy. But but part of me, it scares me because people really believe this. You know, they believe it because they feel they live in a world where you can't really explain why things happen. And I, I think a lot with students about how we understand the way the world gets made and remade. And I think for fans of Taylor Swift, it seems both very capricious and very harsh how the world is made. This is a generation of students who competed hard if they wanted to go to college, and if they didn't want to go to college, had a hard time figuring out how they were going to economically survive without serving a corporate boss they often never met. So the sense of that power is both faceless, capricious, and not exactly meritocratic, abounds in the Swifties. So they're looking to find power. 
And when they watch TV with their parents, they see presidential candidates who seem to act either not very well physically or like clowns who are trying to destroy their country. That doesn't make them feel safe. They're looking for a place away from that kind of madness, which seems to just reify answers to questions that don't help anybody. And they turn on the news and they see people are still dying around the world from wartime conflicts they truly can't tell who is good and evil anymore. They see the seas rising and they worry about climate change, but don't really have a lot of specifics on the, on the table. And they feel themselves to be unable to afford to buy homes, even if they get through college. So a sense that the world is fairly capricious, not ordered reasonably, and led by leaders who don't seem to try to bring order forward or tell the truth, they're looking for some kind of solidity, consistency. And when you look at Taylor Swift, she is one of the most consistently productive and present pop artists in the history of pop artistry. She regularly manufactures a very high level of songs and creates with her fans an intense devotional presence to their interest in her. Show me a politician who does that, and that person can get elected. You know, the more I'm listening to you, and I'm fascinated by everything you're saying, I'm wondering if, if one, Taylor Swift decides that maybe this uh, an endorsement, given this controversy, if this endorsement shouldn't be made, and two, if there is no endorsement, there could be a tremendous letdown by the, by the Biden campaign. I'm interested to watch what her millennial and Gen Z fans are instructing her, because I can't say enough. And, and this I learned from the wonderful students I get to work with here at Yale. I taught a class last fall uh, in which several students postulated that her fan base really directs her political action. And they did deep dives into her um, available public posts, but also a lot of the social media activity that's within fan groups and really showed that every time Taylor Swift spoke, it's because her fandom said, you really got to do it on this issue. And I am waging here that I, I, I don't think her fandom is going to encourage it. I think they're going to think it's not a good use of her endorsement. And I don't think her fandom's that excited about Joe Biden. You know, I think they're looking for someone else. I think the country is looking in general for another generation of leaders to lead. And in the meantime, why waste your time? Catherine Lofton is a professor of religious studies and American studies at Yale University and she's written extensively about popular culture. Catherine, I have to tell you that I don't know if, I think when I wrote to you at first, I asked you if, <laughs> if you would be the right person to talk about this. Um, I, I, I love this interview. You, you, I, it, you've given a lot of people reason to think, and it's a, just a, a, a great conversation. It was great having you on the program. I love thinking with you, Ken. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's me. The horror show that we feared would never end, but in reality was only 11 months long, concluded last December 1st. On this vote, the yeas are 311, the nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted, and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the Chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434.
George Santos, the New York Republican who was elected to Congress in 2022 on a campaign platform and biography of lies, thus only became the sixth member of the House to be expelled, the third since the Civil War. As it currently stands, there are 219 Republicans and 212 Democrats in the House, with four vacancies, the smallest House margin since the Depression. There is very little room for error for Speaker Mike Johnson. That was one reason the GOP leadership tried to hold off the expulsion for as long as it could. They needed his vote. But he's gone, and no one, other than maybe late-night TV comedians, mourns his departure. The special election to succeed Santos in New York's 3rd Congressional District is next Tuesday, February 13th. The Democratic nominee is Tom Suozzi, who held the seat for three terms until he left in 2022 for what turned out to be an unsuccessful primary challenge to Governor Kathy Hochul. In his 2020 re-election campaign, he beat George Santos by 13 percentage points. The Republican nominee happens to be a Democrat, Mozzie Pillup, a local legislator who was born in Ethiopia and served as a paratrooper in the Israel Defense Forces. Given the near parity of House seats between the two parties, there is a lot riding on this election. And Bob Hart will tell us how much. He is the Spectrum News New York political director. In a previous lifetime, he was a political reporter and columnist of the New York Post. Bob, welcome to The Political Junkie. Ken, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and it's great to talk about this race because, you know, once upon a time, we couldn't go through any kind of a political conversation without talking about uh, George Santos. And for the most part, for the longest time, I can't begin to tell you how many people would say to me during, you know, while George Santos was still in Congress, he said, how is this guy still serving? I think it's fair to say that the Republicans wanted him gone as much as Democrats did. Well, I think they, for a while, they tried to have it both ways, that they knew he was sort of the black sheep of the Republican family. But to your point in the introduction, they needed his vote. At a certain point, they realized that he became more of a liability as part of that family than his vote counted. And so that's why I I think they got enough votes to oust him, along with all the Democrats voting to oust him. You had a a substantial uh, minority uh, vote in the Republican Party to to kick him out as well. And so that's why we see this historical moment, like you said. It's very, very rare to see anyone expelled from the House. When when Tom Suozzi signaled he was ready for a comeback, you know, many, many Democrats felt he was the guy to pick up the seat because, after all, this was the Democratic-held seat for 22 years until Santos won. But, but abortion rights groups were never wild about Swazi. He had a tense relationship with Governor Hochul. Uh, uh, that was a primary that turned ugly. Does he have a united party behind him? He does, because I, Hochul is able to, to bury that, did bury the hatchet with him and not in his back. She realizes he was the best candidate uh, to win the seat back. Uh, and unlike, say, her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo, who probably that would have been a disqualifying moment that he dared to primary her, I think she saw that he was the strongest candidate and therefore said, let's put this primary behind us. I want you to win the seat for the Democrats. Well, I'm going to play one of his ads. Uh, it opens up with a picture of Santos. And then it switches to Pillip. Same story, new name. Mozzie Pillip's about to embarrass us again. 
refusing to answer questions, subpoenaed to testify about unpaid bills from her family's business. She also owed more than $100,000 in unpaid taxes to the IRS, even filing a false financial disclosure. Mozzie Pillup, she's an ethical nightmare. It's Tom Swazi we can count on. He'll work with both parties to secure our border and fight for the middle class. HMP is responsible for the content of this ad. Bob, you know, one thing that what stood out to me is there's no mention of his party affiliation. The Democrats have been on a little bit of a losing streak in Nassau County on Long Island. And I think that that's why you're not seeing the party labels, so that even though a plurality of people in this district are Democrats, they're disaffected Democrats. The Republicans have had, had done very well over the last two years since uh, Biden has won and really sort of cleaned up. That's why you're not hearing from Tom Swazi saying Tom Swazi Democrat. He's just saying Tom Swazi. He was at one point Nassau County Executive. He was, as you pointed out, uh, represented the district before. So I think he's hoping that name recognition, not party recognition, helps him in this race. But given the fact, as you said, the Democratic Party has uh, suffered a bunch of defeats in recent years and and they're still on the defensive about immigration and the border and crime and taxes. And, and President Biden is unpopular in, in the district. Is that fair to say? Well, he won the district, but it is safe to say that Biden's numbers have definitely dropped in the district since uh, 2020. Which leads to the question, how do you get Democrats to turn out on Tuesday? Well, the good news for Tom Swazi is the, the last person who held the seat was a Republican who, as we know, George Santos was, was a disaster. And so it's not an easy time. I mean, imagine being a Republican, for example, in 1974 in the wake of Watergate. It's not a great time to, to be the next Republican in the district. And that's what Mozzie Phillips' problem is, is that she is now, her legacy, she's trying to fill the, the seats of the last Republican, George Santos. The issues in the race are interestingly, you know, Tip O'Neill once said that all politics is local. But in this case, the issues have been really national, like you pointed out, the migrant issue, crime, abortion, which is typically a winning issue for Democrats, and then Israel, uh, with Tom Swazi actually going to Israel uh, in December to show his solidarity uh, with the families of, of uh, the hostages uh, in Israel. Meanwhile, Mazi Pillup, she's Ethiopian, but then she immigrated to Israel and served in the uh, Israel Defense Force. So you and have she's these- Jewish, right? Yeah, and she's Jewish. So you have these, the, the, the both trying to out-Israel each other. You have Swazi at times criticizing Biden's handling, handling of the migrant issue, and then Swazi going after Pillup and the Republicans on abortion. So you have all of these really kind of national themes in a very local race. Well, speaking of uh, on the unpopularity of Biden, let me play a Pillup's uh, a recent ad from, from Pillup, who basically um, links Swazi with uh, the president. Joe Biden's policies are opening the border, ruining the economy, destroying America. Tom Swasey voted with Biden every single time. Biden and the Democrats let in 10 million migrants and raised taxes on the middle class. Mozzie Pillup is a soldier, a mother, and a fighter who will stop Biden. You can always count on me to do what's right for you. I'm Mozzie Pillup, and I approve this message. You know, she doesn't mention her party either. And in fact, as I said, you know, she's actually a Democrat, but the Nassau County GOP machine doesn't seem to care. You know, they're strongly behind her, right? 
Yeah, and I think that on paper she's interesting. She's a woman of color. She's uh, uh, from uh, Africa and Israel, and so her resume is very interesting. But I think there's been a lot of under-the-radar qualities to this campaign. She's only agreed to one debate. She does very few interviews, and I think they're really afraid of her, uh, as sort of a neophyte, screwing up. And so by staying under the radar, that has been their strategy. And so, I, you know, it's just like, let's avoid a gaffe. But that isn't always a winning strategy if people don't know you as well as the other person. I was going to say, if people don't know her, immediately it comes to mind George Santos, who obviously people didn't know about his past at all. And it turned out, you know, he was a complete fraud. So is there a risk of, of the Republicans latching on to a candidate who we don't know that much about, or, or as you say, is, is that outweighed by her very appealing personal story? I think there's definitely been some weighing of pluses and minuses by the NASA Republicans. And I think the, the minuses are that, yes, they, people can say, oh, you don't really know or what do you know about her? But the pluses are, if you keep your head down, you can't make a mistake. And I think a lot of the strategy is banking on the, the national unpopularity of the Democratic Party, Biden fatigue, and maybe Swazi fatigue. You know, he has been around the block uh, on Nassau County, and maybe people are just want something new. But in terms of, like, letting you inspect the new package, the Nassau Republicans have been very hesitant about that. How much of the candidates are blanketing the airwaves? I mean, I played two ads, but how often do you turn on the TV and there's another, you know, Pillip or Swazi ad? There's been a lot because you're getting the national parties involved. And this is almost, I mean, you, you, know, you mentioned earlier that there's four open seats. Of the four, this is the only really the, going to be the, com- the competitive one. Uh, the, the, uh, there's one upstate in the Buffalo area that's going to stay Democratic. The other two are Republican, and they're going to stay Republican. So this is it. This is like two superpowers funneling a lot of money uh, into like a proxy third, you know, third uh, world country, you know, spending all this money on a fight. And that's what you're seeing. So there's a lot of ads on the air. Plus the fact that whenever there's a special election, you know, it's the only game in town. So there's one, there's going to be national attention. And I assume there's been national money pouring in as well. Exactly. You've had both the House Speaker and the House Minority Leader in the district last week. The one thing I'd caution, and I mean, you sort of touched on this, is people like to people like us like to look at these races and say, "Oh, that's a bellwether." It's not necessarily a bellwether. You and I know every district is different. Even if the issues are national, what's roiling in a district is very different from one to another. So I would caution everyone not to say, oh, well, if Swazi wins, Biden's fine, or if Philip wins, this means Trump's on a roll. Every district is different. Well, I agree with you completely. And, of course, it depends, you know, candidate quality has a lot to do with it as well. Exactly. If, you know, and we always talk about, you know, turnout being obviously everything. What are you looking for in advance of Tuesday's vote? The Queens part of the district, the little part of the district is Queens, and most of it is Nassau County. If you see an elevated turnout in Queens, that's probably good news for Swazi because that, that's a little bit more liberal than the Nassau section. But it's going to take some real parsing. You're really going to want to look at turnout in 2022 and 2020 and look at, at, the, at the counties. The other thing, that, and this is just uh, me griping, no one else cares, is the results in Nassau typically take longer than in the, uh, New York City. So it could be a later night, even if the turnout isn't that high. Bob Hart is the Spectrum News New York political director. Bob, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Ken, it was my pleasure.
Okay, I know we're sick and tired of George Santos, but but I found a wonderful spoof by Comedy Central that is just brilliant. I gotta play it. You've probably been hearing a lot in the media about our new congressman, George Santos. But now it's time that you hear from us, the people who voted for him. We here in New York's third district voted for Congressman Santos because he's a fighter. And not just as a politician, but as a boxer who beat Muhammad Ali in 1972. It's a great fight. Come on, Tommy! I stand with George Santos because when my apartment building was collapsing, he held it up with one arm. I support George Santos because simply put, he's a war hero. We also invented the window. I'm voting for Santos because he cares about seniors. And as an 87-year-old woman, that's important to me. I stand with the brother George Santos because he invented the cure for COVID. Just wish he had done it before I died from it. I stand with Santos. Yep, even me. Academy Award winner Morgan Freeman. That was so funny, but I guess at the same time, so tragic. Welcome to Current Day Politics. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. <laughs>